Good evening. Well, our dear friend Tara is not sitting here tonight because she hurt her back and she's lying down. So she is now probably the only one at this retreat who has pain, right? <laughs> we raised our hand. Um, we've heard that there's a number of people working with emotional and physical challenges, pains. That's part of the process that we're in. So tonight I want to talk about working with difficulty. And tonight we have a few visits by our dear friend Rumi. So I'll start with a couple of lines from Rumi. He says, Be like melting snow. Wash yourself of yourself. And a white flower will bloom in the stillness. Great poets can do so much in a couple of lines. You can feel the truth in that. And in this movement that he takes us through from the cold snow of winter to the spring flower, we are reminded that awakening involves a process that happens over time and that it involves a death and rebirth cycle. And Rumi, with just this one brushstroke, this one image of this white flower, reminds us that something beautiful and sacred can emerge out of this snowy winter that seems so frozen and so dead. So we've been given many teachings and poems and stories that are maps that remind us that the spiritual journey is not about having a flashy experience, but rather it is a journey that crosses seasons, winters and springs and summers, difficult, beautiful, boring seasons, different seasons. So it wouldn't have been so inspiring if Rumi had said, so be like melting snow, and then everything will turn into muddy slush forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's not how these maps go. These great beings come, and they leave us these teachings. And over and over again, and all the different systems and and, um, lineages, these maps say, yes, on this journey, there will be challenges, and there will be expansions, and there will be contractions, and there will be deaths, and there will be rebirths. And that is all part of the path. Part of it. It's not a mistake, and it's not your fault. You didn't do it wrong. And that all of that can be used to help us open, and to help us touch the awakened heart, the awakened mind. A woman um, who was a Catholic nun for 18 years came to a retreat I taught, and at the very last interview she came in, and she said, "Um, I've always wanted to feel the love of Christ, but I never actually felt it. She said, I never felt it until I came here and learned how to sit with my anger and my shame. Interesting connection, huh? Finally, she learned to sit with anger and shame and felt the love of Christ. Um, She said, I felt surrounded by love. Then later, the love moved through me towards others. But it wasn't me. There was only love. Hmm. So we learn a way of being with difficulties that can be part of the opening. So many of you know that the Buddha listed five categories of possible difficulties. Actually, it includes every possible difficulty that could ever happen, these five categories. So the first one, for those of you who haven't heard this, is translated as sloth and torpor. I like those words, sloth and torpor. You just don't even have to explain what they mean. Although if you look it up in the dictionary, sloth is a really slow-moving animal, and uh, torpor is apathy or lethargy. So that's the first of these categories that the Buddha said, pay close attention here, because if you don't pay close attention, they can turn into a hindrance to meditation. 
They don't have to be a hindrance, but they can get there. The second category is grasping. You know, uh, I'm sorry, restlessness. The opposite of sloth is restlessness. Scattered, agitated, can't focus, feel like I can't sit still, my mind is in 10,000 places, I'm coming out of my body, restless. The third one is grasping. And, you know, it's wanting, and if, if only I had that, fill in the blank. If I only had that, then everything would be okay. If I only had that double cappuccino, then everything would be okay at the retreat. So <clears throat> the next of these five categories is the opposite of grasping. It's really just the other side of the coin. It's aversion. If only I could get rid of fill in the blank that woman sitting next to me who's breathing like that, or whatever is the thing, the irritation, the frustration, the anger, the ill will, the judgment, all these ways that we, that we want to push away the experience. And the fifth of these five areas to pay attention to is doubt. I doubt myself, I doubt the teacher, I doubt the Buddha, I doubt the practice, I doubt, you know, that it's possible to do whatever, you know, doubt. <laughs> so some of you might be going, oh my God, I, I've had them all in the last sitting, you know. <laughs> and that's um, because these are not the five mortal <coughs> sins of meditation. They are, they are energies that visit every meditator. They're energies for us to learn to work with. So it's actually not, for instance, the sleepiness or the anger that is the hindrance. It's our relationship to <clears throat> the sleepiness. So are we paying attention? Are we being mindful? Are we being compassionate? Or are we judging? Are we identifying with this energy? Are we completely lost in it? It's our relationship to it that can get us into a lot of trouble. Or are we making up wild excuses why that fifth nap today was really helping my practice? You know, we can, with these energies, we can tell ourselves stories. So you could have your fifth nap and say, well, it's because I read Dave Barry's article here. Those of you who know Dave Barry is a humorist who especially likes to make fun of male psychology. So men, I hope you are willing to laugh with us a little here <clears throat> about sloth and torpor. Our first item concerns what could be the most significant medical discovery for men since the invention of the electric nose hair trimmer. Researchers at the University of Chicago have discovered that, in capital letters, letters Men need sleep. <laughs> the reason for this is hormones. For example, men produce a hormone that compels them to watch instant replays on television. <laughs> According to the University of Chicago researchers, men produce a hormone that causes them to develop muscle mass, which they need to perform tasks that are biologically necessary for human survival, such as operating the remote control. The thing is, men produce this particular hormone only during sleep. So this is a completely ridiculous example of stories that we can tell ourselves and say, oh, but this is a good thing. But now I'll tell you one that's actually true, just to let you know we can do this, and it's us. We can talk ourselves into things around these five areas. This happened at IMS. And um, it was a long retreat, and a man really sat there and convinced himself everything would really be better if I would just, for a little while, leave the retreat, check into a motel, and watch a football game. <laughs> and he did it. He did leave the retreat. <clears throat> so needless to say, when he came back, he felt a little bad. One reason he felt bad was that it didn't make everything better. I know that's a big shock, but watching the football game actually didn't take away all his suffering. Um, he also felt 
kind of bad because once he got back, he realized he had to tell the teacher. And the teacher happened to be Deepama, this, 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 the woman saint from India who's like four foot five or something. Um, he had to go into this woman from India who's like this great saint of our lineage and tell her that he'd been at the motel watching football. <laughs> <coughs> and so he could have saved himself some trouble and a little bitty bit of money had he been paying some close attention probably a couple days before he went. I imagine he started thinking of this <coughs> for a few days. He could have noticed this thought, oh, I really want to see that football game. Oh, that would really, that would be good. I really want that. And as soon as that happened, mindfulness could have said, oh, wanting. End of story. Or maybe it would come back five times, ten times. Maybe it came back so many times that pretty soon he had the opportunity to actually drop the um, meditation on the breath and meditate on, be mindful of the wanting. What does this feel like? What's it like in my body? He could have sat and used that not as a distraction, not as a hindrance, but just as another object of meditation. But, uh, you know, as the story goes, he actually took the ride, as they say, and um, went and watched the football game. So it's actually possible through practice to learn to relate to the wanting or the sleepiness or whatever instead of from it. And that's that shift right there. Inside that shift is freedom, relating to the problem instead of from it. So um, if sloth or restlessness, grasping, aversion, or doubt, if you notice any of those coming up, and they could be subtle, turn up the mindfulness, pay close attention. That's the main instruction with these. Or you could wind up in a motel watching football which would be, for me, a a version of a hell realm, but maybe you'd like that. (laughs) So I mentioned these different kind of maps that we've been given. And there's a map in the Buddhist tradition from the lineage of the elders called the Stages of Purification that describes in precise detail stages that a meditator may go through all through all their phases of meditation, all the way up to ultimate liberation. So as I tell you a little about this map, remember, maps are not the way it is. Maps are a way that it might be. So here's one map about possible things that can happen in meditative experience. Um, After the meditator has cultivated very deep concentration and mindfulness, they may begin to experience these stages of purification. And the texts include writing about restlessness and physical pain, but as the practitioner deepens in meditation, the pains go away, and they may begin to experience very extraordinary states of rapture and tranquility and joy that fills the whole body and mind. And the meditation deepens and moves toward freedom as the meditator lets go of all attachment to those extraordinary states. You might have thought, oh, going deeper. No. Letting go, not holding on to them, not pushing them away, but letting go and really paying very close attention to the mind-body process that's happening right now. And in that process, the meditation deepens. And it deepens to knowledge of dissolution. So the meditator is paying very close attention to this moment and begins to really experience that everything has the nature to arise and to vanish. Everything arises and disappears. All the thoughts, all the feelings, all the stories we tell, you know, all of our civilizations are retirement funds. They all have the nature to arise and disappear, as we recently realized. 
So when this when this insight to the impermanence, to how everything can disappear, has become a deep, direct experience, not a theory, the meditation continues to progress towards freedom. And we're going deeper and deeper now to very deep states. And you might think, well, what's next? Maybe it's bliss. Actually, what's next on this map? Fear. Isn't that interesting? Awareness of fear. Misery. Suffering. Right here on the map. Just like on the shamanic maps. Just like on the Christian contemplative maps. So on all the maps. Of course it is. This is the hard stuff that is part of the human journey. And part of the spiritual journey is learning how to traverse this territory. And obviously learning to work with um, suffering, misery, as the text says, um, is very demanding practice. It's, it takes so much letting go and so much compassion. But the meditator keeps opening, opening to misery, opening to fear. And the opening to sit with fear, as a number of you know, is so deep. You open so far that that passes and the meditation progresses. Now, and it moves to very deep and profound levels of equanimity. So the meditator has come to places of the deepest peace with the way things are, resting with life as it is. And the meditation deepens. And I could go on, I mean, the details of these pages and pages of the, the states that follow sublime clarity and peace and emptiness, all various stages up all the way to nirvana. So hearing this map, some of you may feel like running out the door going, whoa, what was I you know, getting myself into? And others of you may feel like running to your palm pilot and scheduling quickly your two-month retreat so that you can go, wow, you know, a month, I'll, I'll give myself about four weeks for developing access concentration and then maybe three or four days for that dark night of the soul part and then, <laughs> um, and then on to a few weeks for enlightenment, you know, and, and, and we all know and we laugh because we know it's not like that. Of course it is not that tidy and it's not that linear, really. There, there's no way that we can know or control when these different stages will come and there's no way that we can control when they'll go. These various stages I mentioned can come from moments or months. And it's also not like we can say, okay, I went through a dark night. I really did. That was a hard retreat. Now I can check that off the list. Whew, that's taken care of now for maybe three or four lifetimes and, and I'll just spend the rest of the time in equanimity. It's not like that. These cycles of death and rebirth move continuously through life, all of life and all of our life, and we evolve with them. We deepen with them. So our task is not to go hunting for any particular experience, uh, and it's not to try to get rid of any particular experience or to fix or to diagnose or to change any particular experience. Just like Jack said last night, our task is to learn to become present and see clearly just what is so in this moment and open to this. Can I include this in awareness? So if you really um, really think about this, it's a radical teaching. I mean, it's revolutionary. I mean, who in their right mind would think of opening to fear and misery? I mean, isn't the point of life to seek pleasure and avoid pain? Doesn't everybody know that? Isn't that how it is? I mean, that's look around. Look at our world. Look at our culture. Look what we're conditioned to. So this teaching is very, very different than that, than our conditioning. And I just want to say there's nothing wrong with seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. It's just that that 
doesn't particularly necessarily lead to liberation. Or if it does, you know, let's all go there. It's, let's go to that path. Um, let's all go to the beach in Hawaii if, if in fact, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain would, would do it. Stephen Levine, who's a dear teacher friend to many of us, tells a story of he went to his first meditation retreat. This is 30-some years ago. And it was hard work, and he came home and began experiencing this fear that had no particular... He had no reason to be afraid. He just felt really afraid. And in his classical way of telling stories, he included that he just had to keep running to the bathroom and peeing. He was so afraid. So he's getting more and more afraid. Now he's getting afraid about being afraid. So finally he calls the Roshi. He said, I think I've done something wrong. I'm having all this fear, and I want to know what I should do to stop it. And the Roshi said, oh, fear, very good. He said, stop it. No, no, you've worked so hard to get there. You don't want to stop this fear. So it's, it's a, like I said, it's a really radically different way of look, looking at life. Normally, we would go out of our way to stop the experience of fear. So practice isn't about making any particular thing happen. It's about being with what actually is happening. It just sounds so simple, doesn't it? Um, the Buddha once gave a meditation instruction. He said, In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the sensed, just the sensed. And he went on from there. He said, you don't need to add to this, the scene or the herd. Therefore, you don't need to add any therefore. It's like if you're experiencing anger, you don't, you can just, you don't say, have to say, therefore, I'm not a spiritual person. Anger, therefore, it's my mother's fault. You know, therefore, I'm going to lose my job. Just in the anger, just the anger. So I, um, some years ago, I was sitting a retreat out in the desert, and several days into this retreat, I got into this place of really painful yearning, uh, longing, this sort of feeling of horrible insufficiency, of, of sort of, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough. For whatever this is that I'm longing for, I'm not ever going to be good enough for it. So it was just a, it was a awful sort of feeling. And I was also, in addition to that form of dukkha, which is the word for suffering, I was in all this judgment about, uh, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this, and all this preference, I would really rather be feeling this, all, all sorts of defenses in my mind. I was, I was so struggling with this experience. You know, I want a plan. I want a guarantee. I want this to stop. And notice the emphasis on the I. That's an important part of this story. I was trying to, to fill this sort of gaping hole with all sorts of stories and plans and spiritual teachings, anything. You know, I, I, I. And then I was out at a walking meditation. I'd been in this thing, this awful experience for some, I don't know, at least a day, and um, which seemed like a year. And I was in the walking meditation, and I just stopped. And I thought, why don't I just be directly with this thing? Why am I so fighting it? And the, when I had that thought my body sort of shuddered. And then I just was standing there in the desert, and I noticed this burning ache in my chest. And awareness went, well, this, this is what a burning ache feels like. And I just sat, and I was with this burning, burning, aching. And then I noticed this longing, this yearning feeling, and sort of this compassionate awareness went, oh, this is what longing feels like. In the longing, there was just the longing. And I suddenly, standing there, 
in that desert felt so open and free. I remember a feeling of such lightness, like I could have, like I could have, like I could fly. The heaviness left. So when I let go of all that, I, I, I need it this way, I have this preference, I have, I have this judgment, I, 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 I need it to be a certain way, what remained was just this bright, clear awareness and this sense of openness and ease that was being present with this aching and burning in my chest. In Rumi, in that poem I mentioned, said, wash yourself of yourself. And in mindfulness practice, this process of being with just this moment and letting go of all that I, I'm going to judge it, I'm going to change it, I, 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 that is the way we wash ourselves of ourself in this practice. We let go of all that I need it like this. So this, um, over the years, this shift of relating to a problem rather than from it, for me, has happened thousands of different moments, thousands of times where this, this has happened. And I'm noticing over the many years that what's happening is a deepening trust. A sense, it's like an, a sense of inner strength that when things arise now, I have so much more trust than I used to that awareness and love can hold this. Whatever it is, stuff that I just couldn't allow myself to see or feel many years ago, now it can arise, it can be known in a different way. Here's another Rumi poem for you. Others will be saying, oh no, but you will be opening out like a rose, losing yourself petal by petal. So our conditioning says, oh no, don't feel that, don't be with that, not longing, not burning. But if longing or burning is what is actually here, then our practice is to be with that. He says, but you will be opening out like a rose. So when we meet this, the tight knots of I, whatever that is, with awareness and love, there's a natural unfolding. There's a natural letting go of ourself, pedal by pedal. This we unfold beyond the small sense of ourself into this, what Rumi's calling this opening rose, into um, a spaciousness, an openness, a sense of compassionate interconnection. So a woman um, came to retreat who had done a number of retreats and this was a 10-day, she came in and she reported that she had become very concentrated, more than she had in the past, which then was followed by severe restlessness, anxiety, and then a lot of fear. And she came to talk to me and she said, um, four years ago I had breast cancer. I was treated, I was surgery and treatment, and I've been clear, but I have been living in fear of a reoccurrence. She had two young daughters, and she said, um, I've done everything to get rid of this fear. You know, I've done hypnotherapy and EMDR and Bach flowers and pillow pounding. You know, I've been around the bend, and um, what's worked best for me was meditation. That's why I've been coming to all these retreats recently. And she said, I don't want to sit and feel this fear. I've felt it so much. I actually want to get rid of this fear. So I said, um, well, I mean, you know what I was going to say to her. I said, um, there are phases in practice where the practice really brings a deep sense of peace, deep calm, and stability, 
And there are phases of practice that actually expose fear, if fear is what is here. And that becomes then a deepened opportunity to learn a new way of being with the fear. But it's not about trying to get rid of fear. Although it may, um, you may have a very, you may experience more what fear really is, and you may experience more who or what you really are through this practice. So she was definitely reluctant, but willing to just sit there during the interview and see what would happen. So I asked her if um, she was feeling it at that moment, and if so, where was it, and what did it feel like in her body? And she said, well, my stomach and my chest are tight. And I said, so right now, can you just be, can the meditation just be tight stomach, tight chest? Can you be present just with tightness, without this huge story? And so she sat for a few moments, tight, tight chest, and she said, it's getting tighter. My throat is constricting. It's getting hard to breathe. I'm really getting scared, you know. So I said, okay, constricting, just noticing. And then she said, this tightness feels like a wall that's trying to hold off terror. So I said, so can you be here just this moment with the sense of this wall and this held off terror? And she began to just sweat and shake and was sitting there just shaking and then just broke into these sobs and just said, I am so afraid that this stuff is going to metastasize into my brain and I'm going to lose it in front of my little girls and there's not going to be a mama there to help them through this and I can't bear it. And she said, that's what happened to my sister, and I can't bear it. And she just grieved and sobbed, and then got quiet. And after being quiet for a few minutes, she said, there's a deeper fear here. She said, "Um, I am afraid of the unknown. I'm afraid of dying. And then she said, you know, sort of like, oh shit, sort of, is what I remember, excuse me. She said, "Um, there is this abyss. I feel like I am slipping into this abyss. And I feel like the ground is coming out from under me, and I feel like there's nothing to hold on to. So I said, can you tolerate this, just this sense of slipping an abyss, even for a moment? And by the way, this level of practice is hard and usually done when you're with someone assisting you, although it can be done by yourself if it comes. But So she, she was there experiencing this sense of abyss and this sense of tumbling and deep fear and disorientation. And then she at some point noticed and reported, she said, um, it's soft. And I said, oh, soft. And she said, like black velvet. And she described, she was noticing that what she was falling through was this soft black velvet. And she said, there is no end. It's safe. And as she noticed this softness, this safety, she began to relax and expand into this deep, deep place of silence. And she described, as she sat there, this feeling of infinite peace, silent, immense open space that was completely home, completely safe. And so she just was completely um, joining with this boundless stillness and sitting in it, letting it letting it have her. And what happened was these tears, big tears, came down her face, and she said, I feel so much compassion for myself. Compassion for how hard this has been, and how afraid, and how painful it's been to be separate from this truth. And she said, I feel compassion for my family. She said, I feel compassion for everyone who's ever felt separate 
from this truth that she was touching. It was a beautiful, profound experience for her. It was a gift for me to be there with her. And I was really curious how this would affect her life because profound experiences at meditation retreats do not necessarily transform your life, by the way. There's no rule there. You still have to work every day. So I asked her to call me. She lives in a different state, and she called me in a couple months. And she said the first couple weeks that she got home from this retreat, there were waves of fear. And she said, sometimes I could actually be with them, and sometimes I pushed them away. But she said, the practice that's been easier for me to connect with regularly is compassion. I feel this ongoing sense of compassion that I hadn't felt before. And she said, the most important thing from the retreat, she said, before that retreat, the fear really seemed to be the reality, the greater truth. And she said, since the retreat, I know that there's a greater truth, and I know that it's holding everything. She had developed what's verified faith that no one could take. She'd had an experience that wasn't, even though she wasn't always there, she knew that was underneath everything. It's priceless to be able to trust that. And to see that that gift came from sitting with fear, which wouldn't have, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh good, fear. Remember the Rumi poem, others might be saying, oh no. A lot of us say, oh no, no way am I going to sit with the fear of death. No way. But she was able for moments to sit with that, and she opened out, like Rumi said, like a rose. She lost herself petal by petal. As she let go of all that resistance, the resistance to what was so in the moment, she was letting go. Those were the petals. And she was opening to this deep peace of being and to the heart of compassion. I have another map that's been important to, I'm sure, millions of people because this map is 5,000 years old. It's the story of Inanna's descent into power. And um, I'll read some of it in the language, the mythic language it's translated in because I think there's value in hearing that language. Inanna is the queen of heaven and earth and she became the holder and the giver of mes, spelled M-E-S. Isn't that interesting? Which are qualities of power and rulership. She decided to go to the underworld to visit her sister, Ariskagal, the queen of the underworld, whose husband had died. Many tried to talk Inanna out of going there, saying, please don't go. You're going to the place from which no one returns. But Inanna insisted. So at the first gate of the underworld, she felt her crown as it was taken off her head. She said, what is this to the gatekeeper? And he said, the ways of the underworld are perfect and may not be questioned. As she went to the second gate, her lapis necklace was taken her throat from her throat. Her voice closed down. Loneliness settled like a vulture on her shoulder. At the third gate, the beads over her heart disappeared. She tried to remember love, but felt faces fading and couldn't feel the love she had relied on. At the fourth gate, the jeweled belt was taken from her hips, and she didn't know if she was a male or female. At the fifth gate, she was stripped of her golden armband that had been given to her by her brother, the sun, and lost all memory of the light. At the sixth gate, her lapis rod of reason was taken from her hands. Her hands were empty. Everything fell into chaos. And at the last, the seventh gate, her royal robe was taken. 
She was naked, crushed, humbled. Her body was hung on a peg with the other corpses. Nothing in the great above world would grow. Her servants were sent to the great below world to save her. They were instructed to go to Eriskagal, the queen of the underworld, who was moaning in pain because she was great with child yet alone. She, they were told, whatever Eriskagal speaks, speak it back to her. So when Eriskagal moaned, oh, my insides, oh, the pain is unbearable, they said, oh, your insides, oh, your pain is unbearable. This listening reawakened Eriskagal's compassion. Healing water entered her heart, and she told the servants that they could have anything they wished. Of course, they asked for the body of Inanna. They arrived, they revived her, and Inanna rose, queen of heaven and earth. She returned to the land of the living, radiant, glowing, and regally adorned, bringing the return of all life with her. So this is a rich story. I mean, obviously, just from these images that I read on these few pages, we could have a whole retreat, and it's powerful. Um, And you can sense why this story, which is, by the way, much, much, much longer and far more intricate than that, um, why it has stayed around for 5,000 years. There's a lot of of deep wisdom in those few pages. Um, For one thing, it really helps us humans to know and to understand that awakening sometimes includes a descent, a dismantling that comes before the rebirth. And if we know this, if we can understand this, if we can surrender to this process, it does not have to be as grueling as it can be for for us so often. The point that I think is most important that I want to mention tonight is the turning point in the story <coughs> where the um, her servants <coughs> um, meet Eriskagal's pain with this reflective listening, just being there with what is, like mindfulness. And it's this quality of listening that unlocks Eriskagal's heart of compassion, and then Inanna can arise. And of course, in myths, all these parts are parts of ourself. By the way, those servants are just tiny little beings this big. And that's an important part of the story, too. So this, um, this truth that that the turning point happened when Eriskagal was listened to and that the compassion made way for the rebirth. This is a truth that was true 5,000 years ago, and it's so true right now. I, for myself, have experienced this so many times and so deeply, and with so many, many people I've worked with, we've seen this. that when we finally can be with our pain and meet it with awareness and compassion, the pain can begin to transform. We can begin to experience it in a new way. Sometimes love is experienced like a very warm embrace of a caring mother. And sometimes love is experienced as a silent, edgeless space. Different, just different qualities of love. There are times when our greed or our guilt or our numbness, whatever, when it's met and held with mindfulness, which has no judgment, no agenda. It doesn't need it to be different. There are times where that 
can be experienced as a profound depth of love. To just, mindfulness just lets us be. So uh, many people here, many of us know of or know um, two wonderful teachers, Sharon Salzberg and Stephen Levine, and they both have books that just came out in the last several weeks. When I was reading both of these books, I noticed they were completely different from each other, but there were some striking similarities in these two books, the main one being that they both tell their personal story in the book, which, of course, includes a period where each of them, in their own way, at separate retreats at different times and different continents, but each of them, after years of intense practice, deep practice, dropped down into this descent, into this dark night of the soul. And in each of these books, these two authors very generously um, reveal agonizing suffering that they went through, grueling shame and pain and grief and fear. They really lay it out. And they also each wrote about the turning point. And it's, it's so interesting that for both of them, the, the place where they began to come out of this dark night, this really hard place that didn't just last a few minutes, by the way, it was, it was pretty extended for both of them, was when they were finally each in their own way able to have this suffering be held by their own heart of mercy and compassion. When they could finally meet their suffering without judgment, but with compassion, their hearts both, in the ways they wrote about it, broke open to themselves and to all beings, right through the suffering. And this is such an important part that's in that story from Inanna. It's, it's all around the world. It's, a, it's an important teaching. It's an important part of our practice that we can cultivate this kind of attention, compassionate awareness that can hold even the most difficult parts of ourself. We can learn to do what the Buddha recommended. He said, learn to hold yourself as you would hold your only child. With that much tenderness and care, we are told to learn to be with ourselves, And it's not just something you do now and then. This is a practice. My teacher once had me said, said, Deborah, do this every day. And I did it every day for years and years, for a long time. It's such an important practice. I'll just read some from Stephen Levine's book. Um, He he goes on for maybe a couple of chapters about this descent in this hard time. He really describes it. So this is the turning point. He said, One morning, beginning the metta meditation, I turned to myself and said, May you be happy. May you be free from suffering, as I had hundreds of times before. But this time, my body began to shake. As I continued a bit bewildered, I could feel my senses open. May you, yes, you, be free from suffering. I was trembling and began to weep. May you be at peace. I had never known such care for my well-being. I was finally letting myself into my own heart. This great letting go of identification with my lowest sense of self, with my prideful self-rejection, went deeper. Somewhere in my heart, I could feel a great door swing open. Tears of joy soaked my beard. May I be free from suffering. A warmth suffused my limbs, spreading through my body and settled in my heart. There was absolute quiet where there had been fear and judgment. For the first time, 
I experienced in a place deeper than thought that love is an effortless, natural state of being. I recognize love as clear awareness, as an absolute openness. Again, from such difficulty to absolute openness, of course Rumi would have something to say about that. Rumi says, whoever finds love beneath hurt and grief disappears into emptiness with a thousand new disguises. The most difficult things can be used to help us disappear into emptiness. So I have so much gratitude for the great poets and the great teachers, the great artists and and beings who have genuinely traveled the spiritual journey and who have left us with maps and practices to help guide us to the other shore. So much gratitude. And gratitude for the teachings that remind us that awakening includes death and rebirth, joy and sorrow, and that these are natural parts of the journey. They are part of the path. If we can remember this, if we can trust, ah, this is part of the path, this is part of practice. We don't have to take it so personal when we feel contracted or solid. If we can remember the practice, we don't have to get completely lost in our suffering. We can remember that this too, whatever this is, whatever this difficulty is, Even this is part of practice. Even this can be held in awareness and in love. So it would seem only right if I would end this evening with a Rumi poem. Rumi says, I saw grief taking a I'm sorry, I saw grief drinking a cup of sorrow and called out, it tastes sweet, doesn't it? You caught me, grief answered, and you've ruined my business as well. How can I sell sorrow when you know it may be a blessing? So let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.